Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Jean Paquin, the co-founder of the SAF Plus Consortium and the Carbon Consult Group. Jean is an engineer with over 25 years of experience in carbon management and the development of renewable energy projects worldwide. He has a wide range of expertise in engineering, management, project finance, hydro generation. Jean, welcome to Energetic. Thank you very much, Maureen. Jean, you have quite an exceptional background in developing renewable power projects worldwide. You're an expert in climate change mitigation strategy, as I just said, and environmental project management. Why and how did you decide to embrace this uh, career path? Well, first of all, um, I'm an outdoor guy and a family man. So I, I just love nature and I love my children. So I always wanted to, to leave them with some sort of uh, outdoor experience, the same outdoor experience that I've always uh, lived and, and enjoyed during my childhood and um, a sort of uh, an environmental legacy I wanted to, uh, to leave to my kids. There's a saying in English, uh, and it goes, it goes like that, right? It says, earth is not yours, but it is lent to you by future generations. And uh, I therefore had to take care of, of, of what was never really mine, but was always uh, was kindly left to me by generations before. And, and I always took that to heart. That is one of the issues that I, uh, I noticed as I was going through my career path. And, and I was uh, putting a paper on uh, CFCs back in the 90s. They were not doing a favor to, to, to Earth, right? There was a lot of issues on resources related to, uh, to the extent use of resources. And I was only 18 then and started to, to see the effect of, of the overconsumption and questioning the way uh, we could continue like this uh, without running into a wall, basically. So it was always, to me, a real intense feeling for Earth and the outdoor. And as I started engineering, and because I come from Quebec, from province of Canada, where uh, water is abundant and associated to, to energy uh, through our utility here, Hydro-Quebec, is all 100% almost renewable. I decided to become uh, an hydraulic engineer and hopefully build a few water projects, uh, which I did during the course of my, of my career. And then traveling all over the place afterwards, once my education was completed, I came upon the opportunity to go to Europe. And I was supposed to stay there for about a year or two. And finally, I stayed there for 15 years. I lived in beautiful Spain for 15 years where I worked as an electrical engineer in electrical systems. And throughout my trip across Europe, but then I, I traveled a lot too across the Middle East and uh, I went to uh, different industries I went to Southeast Asia, to South America, to Africa. And what I noticed is how impossible it was in some cases to even consider decarbonizing or, or, or let alone taking care of the environmental uh, issues 
for some countries, uh, for some some people. It was just very difficult for them to do that. And so I started from there, coming back into into the renewable. I, I started to to focus more on the renewable sector. I left Europe and came back to Canada. And now for the past other 15 years of my, of my career, I've been exclusively dedicating myself to uh, run a river project and climate expertise consulting. And finally, I, for the last uh, few years of my career, I stopped and, and, uh, and landed on sustainable aviation fuel projects. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So a few years ago, you decided to found this uh, South Plus Consortium. So correct me if I'm mistaken, but it's a Quebec-based firm specialized in conceptualizing sustainable fuel, which is manufactured by capturing CO2 emission from large industries. So this is already very, very interesting and very complex and very original as a way to perceive the uh, fuels. And as you know, and probably as it is the case for many of our listeners, uh, I am very unfamiliar with the aviation or fuel sector. And even the very idea of fuels being sustainable seems an oxymoron. In Europe, as you certainly know, we rather talk about uh, carbon offsetting to reduce the carbon footprint of our travels, or even the flight scam or flight shame. Uh, in certain circles. So what is SAFPLUS and what is SAFPLUS Consortium trying to achieve with this synthetic fuels? Okay, well, first, I guess foremost, the, the sustainability and fuels make sense when you consider the full life cycle analysis for, of the fuel. In our case, and I'll explain what we're doing, in our case, we're, we're capturing CO2 emissions from large emitters from smokestacks, and we're combining it with green hydrogen to make fuel. So that allows for 80% less carbon footprint. And that's substantial. And that's, of course, when you think sustainability, fuel, then, then you start having some sort of confusion because you always hear that fossil fuel should be taken off the, the, the market, the energy scheme, and then we should always focus on renewable we should focus on a more a cleaner, sustainable energy technology. And that's true. In this case, you are, in a way, helping the industry to decarbonize uh, through the capture of this CO2, the combination with the green hydrogen, and in essence, the reverse process of the combustion. That doesn't decarbonize the full industry, but it really does uh, provide a strong support. Now, we'll see uh, I guess later uh, I can explain why that is. Uh, in the aviation industry, there are many parts by which you can reduce the, the, the carbon footprint. One is by optimizing the technology, uh, by buying more efficient aircrafts, for instance. And that has been done for many a- airlines, uh, buying aircrafts that reduce by 10, 15, 20 percent consumption and the, the impact, let's say, of the energy need on the system and therefore the the carbon footprint left by the use of those aircraft. The second is to buy carbon offsets. And we're hearing this a lot, carbon offsets here and carbon offsets there. And that's all great because that's one other way for the industry to decarbonize. The problem with carbon offset is that it has to be really well controlled. Some of them, some projects might have more or less control issues in terms of the quality of the project than others. 
Uh, that's one. And then second, they're not that abundant. They are there, but they're, they're not going to be alone the only way by which, the only um, uh, path by which the industry is going to decarbonize. So you want to look at other options. And one of the third option available for the industry is to have a cleaner jet fuel, uh, which will have a lesser carbon footprint. And this is where SAF comes in. What, what we're trying to achieve here is to give the aviation sector a technological option, which on, until the electric and the hydrogen aircraft will be available. And we hear that a lot, uh, electric aircrafts here and uh, hydrogen aircrafts there. And that's all fine because they're in the planning but they're not going to be available and useful or, or usable, let's call it this way, until it occurs. And that's mainly or mostly going to be in 2050 or 2060. So in the meantime, more than just offset credits will be required to compensate the additional emissions. And that will occur in the next 30 to 40 years. So SAF does that segue. Sustainable aviation fuel does a segue to the, uh, the later, more efficient and sustainable technology for the aviation. How did you came up with this idea? Because it seems a bit like magic that you can capture the CO2 emissions and make it, transform it into fuels. It seems like somehow so evident that I wonder why nobody had thought about that before. Or I don't know if it's magic or if it's just like logical. I'm not an engineer by training and It's a very genuine, naive question from my side, but yeah. yeah, I'm really curious about how this kind of process comes into the mind of people. Okay, well, no, and, and your curiosity is, is normal. Uh, when we talked about uh, capturing a CO2 and combining it with hydrogen, and it, it's, all, it's all terms that people are like, oh my God, what's, what's going on? What are you going to do? You know, how, how does that work? Well, th the real truth is that it came about from a very normal path from our business. We come from the climate expertise world, and we were, for a few years, responsible to support. And we have a very good background and good understanding of what are the regulations, what needs to be done, when is it going to be done, that it's going to be mandatory. We all knew that and saw it and took part of the development of those regulatory measures. So That is our background. The idea, technologically speaking, is not a new idea at all. It's been around since the Second World War. So what we're doing is essentially reusing a technology that has been used and demonstrated for the past decades. So we're not reinventing the wheels. We're using renewable energy sources to actually produce sustainable aviation fuel. And in the past, it was produced with energy sources that were polluting, that were heavy on carbon. When I was telling you at the beginning on Hydro-Quebec and the, the, the capability we have here of 100% renewable energy, it takes a lot of a line path for this to work, and one of which is to have access to renewable energy. And we do have access to renewable energy. Almost 100% of it is renewable. And that is what makes this sustainable aviation fuel sustainable. It's because the energy used and there's a, quite a lot of energy use in the process, is all renewable. And so the combination of that does a lot of other things, achieves a lot of other objectives. One is that the CO2 emissions does not go in the air. And nobody uh, in my fair mind that, and people I've, I've met and interviewed myself uh, would be against the fact that we would capture CO2 from smokestacks 
and keep it for ourselves for another process. Nobody has said we don't want this, and there's been no pushback so far. People <laughs> feel very comfortable in having us cleaning the smokestack so far. And, and the second is that you are producing essentially a synthetic fuel, a very clean and very good fuel uh, for the, the industry. And by clean, I mean it's, it's equivalent to when in your car, uh, for some, some of you have to change uh, oil change uh, once in a while, and the garage asks you whether you want a synthetic oil or the normal non-synthetic oil. And if you take synthetic, well, you take care, you take more care of your engine and that's exactly the same thing, the same way. The sustainable aviation fuel being synthetic does eventually provide a better quality of fuel for the uh, maintenance of the mechanical system of the combustion and therefore is achieving another objective, that is to have a clean fuel. So that's basically where, where we come from. And a lot of people are, are confused, again, and you've asked this at the beginning, by the fact that, that it's fuel, but again... There's no easy way out of the fossil fuel line. You have to have options, and one of which is this type of fuel, which is, and that's another objective, a drop-in fuel. And by drop-in, we mean that the molecule that we chemically produce can be dropped into the regular or normal or standard distribution system for the airline. And that's very important because you don't need an independent distribution uh, system or, or let's call it pipeline, pipes that, that feed the, uh, the jet fuel to the airline, you can use the conventional actual current system in place to do that. So it means that regular jets, uh, the one that connects Spain to Quebec, can use the fuel that you are producing, right? You can mix the fuel. Once the molecule is made, it is exactly similar and equivalent in chemical composition and properties to the jet fuel, the conventional fossil-based jet fuel. So therefore, yes, you can drop that molecule in the system. And some people might not know that, but plane are not fed on an individual basis. They're not fueled on an individual basis. They're fueled through a common uh, distribution system. So the jet fuel goes to a common area and then jets or airlines or airplanes are actually fed or, or fuel from there, from that main tank. So the molecule is actually mixed with all the other systems molecule that is more conventional. And therefore, ideally, of course, the, the transaction is done with an airline. But the real truth is that that molecule is distributed in the system and it goes to all different airlines at the same time. So in a way, you're decarbonizing the full industry while you do this. That's amazing. That seems so simple that I wonder why that technology had not been developed before. And uh, is it a question of cost? Uh, is, it, is it something, do you think that people were not ready to pay more for their flights? Or, I mean, because in the last years before the COVID lockdowns, etc., at least in Europe, we were seeing the prices of the flights that was decreasing all the time and it was so easy and sometimes cheaper to go from, I don't know, Paris to Barcelona yeah. than from yeah. Paris to, to Bordeaux with the train. So yeah. do you think that there was a question of uh, social acceptance, a question of cost, a question of yeah. why didn't that take off before? That's a real good question. There's, there's a lot of answers to that, but in a nutshell, I could say this. The real price, and this is generalized, by the way, it's not only the, the aviation sector, it goes to all sectors. The real price of energizing the world, of using energy, 
the real price is very often not uh, well taken into account, is not accounted for. The real price, the real impact of use of resources is not accounted for. And it's very unfortunate. And that leads to having us as Canadians using uh, the equivalent of almost five times our Earth resources to supply our needs. And that doesn't, of course, we only have one Earth, right? So at one planet and you're using five equivalent of planets per inhabitants, that doesn't really stand. It doesn't make sense. And, and therefore, there's got to be, of course, a reduction, but there's got to be a cost assessment, a reassessment, the real cost of using these resources. So when we come to a flight, and, and we've had those discussions because we're, we have partners in our consortium, of course, and one of which is an airline, uh, Air Transat here in Montreal is a very well-known airline. And we have continuous discussions with them about, you know, what does it mean? How are we going to pass through this cost to the sector, to the, the, the frequent flyers, to the passengers? How will they accept that, right? And, and it all starts back to, do you understand what is going on? Do you understand the real value of why you're taking a flight that costs you 60 euros as opposed to cost you maybe the real cost would be twice as much as that or three times that? Do you understand why that is, right? Do, do you know what that means from a resource impact assessment? Do you know how sustainable that is? Do you understand what needs to be done for you to enjoy that for the next generations to come. And this is where you start having a personal, let's call it personal discussion with the world. And you discuss about the real impact of what you are essentially or want to do. And you assess the real cost and start understanding that a premium needs to be paid at one point to really sustain that use, sustain that access to market. And in our case, we've, we've done studies on that. And because, and this is really important, because the first years of application of the regulation and reduction schemes uh, on the aviation requires very little addition to SAF in the system, the cost, the real cost for the first year will almost be, almost be invisible. I mean, it will be borne by the industry that will somehow work on their operation and their budget scheme, et cetera. But then the years as we go on, that percentage will increase and they will ultimately need to have to be a pass through in the system, meaning that passengers will ultimately have to pay for that. It, it's not true that when we do our, our calculation and projection, it's impossible, first of all, that SAF be considered at the same price of conventional jet fuel. It just isn't possible in the same manner as wind farms, uh, solar farms were built originally the cost was way too high with respect to what the market was used to pay for their electrons. And therefore, there had to be some sort of amortization over time and reduction of that cost. In that same way, the industry and the SAF, the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Technology, will have to be amortized over time. But luckily enough, the requirement at the beginning are small. So therefore, the cost will be, will be almost automatically borne. And the idea here is going to be to do two things. One, to budget the operations, budget the system so that the system can take that extra premium, but also to have some sort of um, care and sensibilize, if you want, and, and make people aware of the real cost of traveling. 
And that is going to be the challenge. And that challenge, like any other project or sector that has developed, and that I've been involved with in the past in renewable, it can't be done alone by the industry or the private sector. It has to be done with the regulation imposed by the government. The government has to provide incentives. It has to subsidize the industry. It has to say, well, if you fly on sustainable aviation fuel, we'll give you a tax credit. We'll give you some credit to be borne either by the private sector or by the passenger himself on their flight. So there's a fuller scheme here, and people will ultimately have to understand that continuing with like I said at the beginning, an equivalent of five times the actual resources consumption that we have, it just isn't sustainable. And there will have to be a cost associated with that. So it means that airlines must totally reinvent themselves. I mean, certain airlines already propose in their tickets to align on carbon offsetting, but they have also to think broader, think bolder to acknowledge and to recognize that people might be willing to pay a premium to to fly with synthetic fuel. But overall, the, the issue of the environmental impact of aviation has become huge with the, the sudden shutdowns in the sector, with the COVID lockdown, etc. I haven't taken a flight since more than a year and a half, and I don't know when... Yeah, well, welcome to the club. One. Yeah, exactly. I don't know when it will happen again. And that really puts into perspective my, let's say, consumption of flights and the way I was using also aviation on such a... It was a no-brainer. It was the easiest, most convenient way, although I'm really environmentally conscious. And that was somewhere in the back of my mind. But I never thought that one day would happen, that I would have just to stop taking any flights and think that next time I will take one, it will be totally different. Maybe yep. because there will be less people in the in the flight itself because of uh, social distancing, etc. Or maybe also because the airlines have to now better acknowledge the impact and the importance of their sector in, into the, let's say, energy mix or environmental mix as well. So how do you see this private aviation evolve in the future? Well, it is really interesting. There's a paradigm shift, that's for sure. I can tell you uh, from having, again, and I mentioned that before, but talking to stakeholders around our consortium, and, and I talked about the airline, uh, Air Transat, I talked about it airport stakeholder. Uh, others are, are in the manufacturing field, other are in the feedstock field, other are in the distribution field, and, and all agree to one thing. That lockdown is has changed things. Or let's let me rephrase that. We can't just go on doing the same thing, thinking that we're not going to hit a wall again. I mean, this yes. is clear to a lot of people in the industry. I can tell you that. We were not getting the attention we're getting today Mm -hmm. the same way 14 months ago. I mean, we were getting attention and people were all like, oh, this is so, so great and, and it looks good. And uh, wow, great, great. And oh, that's, that's fantastic. But that was about the end of the conversation. Now <laughs> things are getting really serious and people, you can feel it. So the sector, I think, will pull through like any other sector. Let's face it, air travel is not about to disappear anytime soon. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God. Uh, yes, I can agree with the policy around, well, should I take a flight, you know, for 60 euros that I can perhaps use another way of transport that's less 
polluting like train, for instance, in Europe, that's very common. You have very good quality uh, and high, highly efficient systems in terms of train and, tr and transportation. And that makes a lot of sense. Why take a flight uh, that's costing you very little uh, when you have to go to the airport? When you count around the, the carbon footprint uh, of that flight, even though you ultimately and sometimes very curiously, you almost get at the same time because of scheduling, because of delays, because of uh, a lot of issues, you know, the, the choice is pretty clear to me. If there's an alternative that is a low carbon alternative, you should take it. But let along that, flights and traveling is not is not going to go away. People will need to stay connected. If there is one thing that the, the pandemic has, has taught us is it is that we can't work and do business online forever. I mean, I don't know about you, but I will need to travel. And by the end of the year, I always have, I already have a plan to travel abroad if, if it is allowed, of course, uh, and, and I can do that safely. I will have to travel because uh, people will need to stay connected. And, and when you do business, yeah, Zooms and Teams of this world are wonderful, but they're, they're just very limited. And, and connection, physical connections are so important uh, in this global economic market. So climate change also will force people out of their countries and create possibly larger need for mobility as well. And we're seeing this uh, with uh, climate impacts on some areas where, where large volume and large populations need to be moved. Uh, and then there needs to be disconnection of families and then reconnection of families. So it's going, and we're not talking about people moving a few kilometers away. We're talking about people moving thousands of kilometers away. And, and I come from a country where traveling, crossing the country is as, as much time as it takes for me to go to Europe by plane. There's no way we couldn't be using the plane here in Canada to travel and cross provinces. However, people are, are, are no longer willing, I think, to be part of a high carbon scheme they want to see solutions and they will require that the, the industry come up with real sustainable options to, to traveling. Airlines, I guess, will, will have no other options but to offer decarbonization paths or else they will simply disappear. And you're seeing that already. And I can tell you that I'm seeing airlines that have, are having difficulties finding options in the future to meet their, their requirements, their sustainable requirements. They, they haven't done earlier on, like some other airlines, uh, you take uh, active uh, airlines such as uh, uh, United or American Airlines, uh, Air Transat here. In, but they started that five years ago and the premium will be, will be quite high. That's so interesting because it puts everything into perspective. Uh, the desire for people to travel, the, uh, the, business shift and the climate consciousness that we are all developing throughout the society and throughout uh, companies as well. I mean, I guess that even within uh, companies, they don't want this status quo anymore. They want to be proud as well to, to participate to the uh, energy transition process and the uh, preserve the future process as well. And I know, Jean, that you are Canadian, but of course, you, as you said, you lived for many, many years in Europe and I, you are following very closely the situation here on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. What is your understanding or maybe expectations towards this idea of a just energy and climate transition? that has become so mainstream in Europe. The idea is to have a transition that leaves no one behind, where industries and industries that hire people, a uh, heavily polluting industry, will have to convert into something new. What is your understanding of that as 
an expert, as a Canadian, as a person who is absolutely passionate about his job as, as well. No, really, thank you. <laughs> well, the world has shown that it's moving towards uh, enriching, uh, unfortunately, enriching uh, a, a few at the cost of, of most. And, and that's unfortunate. That's, a, that's an unfair balance to start with. And it leads us to a dead end, both uh, socially, of course, but environmentally as well, uh, because you pull from one end on resources and, and you don't leave resources. At one point, something's just going to snap. To me, there is, there's always that paradox in seeing that my generation is one of the healthiest and most prone to survive, right? That we've seen since uh, men populated this planet. Yet the rate of people suffering and, and, and unfortunately not having access to proper environments has never been so high in men's history. So I just don't get it. But when you really, like me, work in this field, you start, you have a, a duty. You have a duty to make sure uh, that you always stick to the objective, always focus on the objective. So you work at a 5,000-foot level. Uh, you're always in the details. But you have that duty and responsibility to snap out, rise above the details and go at 50,000 feet and just look at the overall. What are you doing? You know, what are you doing with respect to what is required? We just don't take enough good care, I think, of our resources. And we have to be able to somehow rise above all that and say, okay, wait a minute. Am I making good use here? Am I feeding in a system that is not going in the right way, in the right direction? Or am I helping and fighting to, uh, and, and fighting is a big word, of course, but, but am I promoting an action that is going to be sustainable ultimately, that is going to make sense for the industry? We need to change clearly the paradigm and look at the way we sustainably survive. We need to embrace uh, new technology that will that will move us away from fossil fuels and and away from the need to consume more and more new resources without making efficient use of the ones we've used already. And and we see that we call this the linear economy as opposed to circular economy. But if you're familiar and you look at it, it just makes sense to not having to reuse all this energy again and again in, in the system to pull out more and more resources as if we had five planets, but to just come out and say, well, okay, what have I used? Do I need to, there's a saying in, in my field, it, the best way to avoid carbonizing is not to carbonize in the first place, right? It's not to use the resources if you don't need it. But if you've used it, how can you efficiently use it? You can't just take 10% or 20 or 50% of a, of a resource and just throw it away when it still has value. And that is what the economy, unfortunately, has done uh, over the past decades. And that's one of our lead, the reason why we created this consortium. We knew that it was only a transitory solution until the real efficient electric and hydrogen uh, technologies would come up. Uh, and we found it more efficient aircraft. But we also knew that by keeping the same old model for three or four more decades was simply absolutely unacceptable and unsustainable. So do you think that uh, SAFPLUS is participating to the circular economy? Oh, yes, absolutely. One of our presentation has a nice circular uh, graphic on it where the CO2 that uh, eventually... It was going to be and had been used for some sort of from from an industry perspective, for any industry perspective, and that CO2 molecule as a resource, let's call it this way, even though it's a, it's a pollution, 
is recaptured into a loop. And that loop reuses the CO2 molecule to combine it with energy and then make fuel. So yes, there's a life cycle analysis and a sort of a circular economy around it where you avoid having to reuse new resources and take them from the ground, dig them deep from the ground again and again and again until we deplete it all and just use this polluting and at this very moment non-useful resource that warms our planet and recircle it back into an economy where you'll reuse it again to make a sector, the aviation sector, a feasible and sustainable sector. Jean, I'm sure you will have inspired a lot of young engineers, and I'm sure everyone who has been listening to us, uh, to our conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here uh, with me on Energetic. Is there any resource or comment that you would like to add? Well, I think I've said it, most of it, but I, I would say this, in front of a blue ocean, we're in front of a new sector. And I've lived that in the past. I've, I've been through, like I said, solar and renewable and wind sectors where people would look at us, you know, they would, they would be, the comments I would get were just unbelievable. Like, what are you doing in this field? They used to call them not, not uh, wind turbines. They used to call them windmills. So <laughs> windmills, what, what, what are you putting there? What is this? This is old stuff. You know, we don't need this anymore. I would say this to anyone who is listening today, believe Break the paradigm, open this blue ocean and navigate. Don't be afraid. People are going to be there. People are going to meet you. And I can tell you right now, five years ago, I was navigating alone. Now people are joining us and everybody's traveling with us. They believe because they know there's got to be a change for this to be a sustainable sector. I just love uh, that idea of navigating and just reinventing Finding America again, that I just love this idea. And uh, maybe that will be the topic of uh, another podcast about uh, the blue economy and uh, the sailing process and the transport and the shipping, etc. I would be really interested in, in exploring those issues as well. And I'm sure our listeners would be too. Jean, thank you so much. Uh, we can find everything on the website of SAF Plus Consortium. Every information will be available, made available in the show notes. Please reach out to Jean and uh, see you next time. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you very much, Marina. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.